Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We're going to take country. We're out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly changing. What we do there is constantly changing. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He held me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. Barney Greatrex is the biography of World War II veteran Barney Greatrex, written by best-selling author Michael Veach, based on the research by myself and Angus Horden. This podcast is a highlights compilation from the book launch held at Knox Grammar School on 8 November 2017. There are a few speakers, including quite an entertaining in-conversation between myself and Michael Veach, if I do say so myself. Enjoy. A very special welcome for the man of the hour from the class of 1939. Would you please put your hands together for Barney Gratian. My name is Alex Lloyd. I'm from the class of 2009. So Barney and I went to school together just a few years apart. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the launch of Barney's biography written by Michael Veach. Barney Greatrex, from Bomber Command to the French Resistance, the stirring story of an Australian hero. This book was first inspired by a documentary miniseries called The School and Country, which was made by Thistle Productions, led by myself and Angus Horton. And that documentary came out at Knox a couple of years ago, and it chronicled the World War II service of 12 Knox old boys, including Barney and also here today, John Reed. Once that documentary was done, Angus and I knew there was something particularly compelling and unique about Barney's story, that we had to get it out there to the wider world. So we took the story to Mackie Kelly, non-fiction publisher at Hachette, a major international book publisher, and he loved it and saw a vision for the book. And he introduced us to Michael Veach. And I'll be chatting to Michael in a little bit, but first I'd like to welcome to formally launch the book, it is the headmaster, Mr. John Weeks. And so they'll read this story of a young boy who just like them went to school here. Sydney-based, ends up, because of world circumstances, uh, in the Air Force, ends up, being shipped out to the UK, ends up becoming a bomb aimer. Who'd ever heard of a bomb aimer? Well, we've got a bomb aimer here with us. Then we find that, tragically, you know, he's shot down and, uh, you know, the other members of uh, that uh, Lancaster bomber perish, but he walks away. He then ends up with the French resistance for over eight months on the run and involved. Uh, with them and their activities in occupied France. Finally, hitches a ride back to the UK uh, when the liberation takes place and then home to his parents and family who thought that he was lost and perished um, all those months before. It's one man's journey, I know, 
amidst a world of turmoil. But it's a fabulous story. I commend it to you, and I want to thank Barney for sharing it with us. But I do want to congratulate you, Michael, because what I know you've, you've been able to do for us with this story is to contextualise it. Um, what I have learned from a historical perspective about where Barney was, the circumstances under which he had to operate, the people who he met and what they were aiming to do is able to be better understood because of the work that Michael has done. And I do want to thank you for that because I think it's, it's absolutely fabulous that we can see how Barney fits into the greater story that's there. It's really a very readable and relatable story. And Michael's brought that to the fore. And I mean, this came from, yes, as uh, Alex said, the, the film which they made uh, for the commemoration of the 100th year of Anzac. Uh, but it also came from uh, their hearts and their passion to get these stories out. And uh, this book is now officially not in the Lancaster bomber anymore, but it, she's launched. And may it, may it fly really, really well. Thank you all for being here. And to introduce our next speaker is Angus Horton. We wish to acknowledge the great contribution and thanks that go to his family for so lovingly trusting and sharing all this wonderful information of Barney's, without which we wouldn't have been able to have this wonderful book. So I would like to welcome Charlie Mort, who is going to be speaking shortly on behalf of Barney. And Charlie is so very important because in 2013, he took his son, and more importantly, he took Barney, who was then 93 years of age, back to France. And you've seen these wonderful photos that have been peeling over behind us. And Charlie took some amazing photos. There's one in particular of Barney looking over the grave of his fellow crew members. And we'll never understand what must be going through his mind. But once again, we would like to acknowledge the contribution that Charlie has made, and in particular Barney, in producing this amazing book. And this book is so important because it demonstrates the triumph of the human spirit, that despite overwhelming odds, especially in Barney's case, good can and will prevail. My son Angus and I had the incredible honour of going to France with Barney in 2013 at 93 years of age, Barney was very happy to make the journey back to a place that is so dear to his heart. There's no doubting the traumatic events of 1944 that Barney endured and that he came home a very different man to the uni student that left Australia determined to do his duty. Angus and I got the chance to visit where his bomber crashed and retraced his journey from there down to La Bresse in the Vosges Mountains. We visited the Commonwealth Graves, the Commonwealth War Cemetery near Nancy, where his crewmates are all buried. They were all in their 20s. Barney's life before the war was very near here in Pimble, as well as right here at Knox. And after the war, he was back again, back here, back to his loving family and friends. Barney, I try to imagine what this must have been like for you, coming back to this wonderful, safe, loving part of the world the events of late 
43 to 40, late 44, must have seemed a bit surreal. Um, looking back through the prism of life in Pimble and the North Shore. Up till now, I've never really felt like there was an appropriate time or place to thank you um, on a number of levels. Um, on a personal family level, I thank you for being such a kind and humble uncle. Um, but in the context of why we're here, I would like to thank you so much, Barney, as well as your long departed crewmates for what you did to keep us safe. Wally Ineson, Reg Gill, Alan Collins, Murray Worth, Alan Jones, Paddy Rankin and Barney. I like to believe that the telling of the story is as much an honour to the memory of your crew mates as it is an honour to you. So Barney, from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of us all here today, I thank you so very much. Thank you, Charlie. And now I would like to welcome the man who has brought Barney's life to the page so wonderfully. Please welcome to the front, Michael Beach. Thanks for being here. Look at that, my goodness. So many people in this room. You're hosting this over here. Well, we've heard a lot about Barney's uh, story from the speakers. So I first would like to acknowledge that we are at the place where it all began for Barney, where he first had exposure to military life, Knox Grammar. Yes, yes, this is, this is where um, this gentleman, of course, went to school and it was lucky that he did come to this school at this time. You mentioned Neil McNeil, the first headmaster, uh, a veteran of the First World War who had been through the Battle of Lewes. Now, the Battle of Lewes was sort of the really first particularly horrible battle for the British of, of the First World War. So he actually saw how ghastly it was. Lewis was a disaster. It was the first one they realised, oh, heck, this is not going to be what we thought it was. This is just going to be a mess. And Lewis was a mess. I think something like, it was in early in the war, 1915, uh, the British lost something like, out of regiments comprising 10,000 men, they had 8,000 casualties in about four hours. So the man was imbued with the notion of how awful war was. And I think, ironically, that's what he imbued into uh, uh, the, the, the school culture here in the 20s and 30s, when he realised rather presciently, and a lot of people didn't, that another war was inevitable. I think his uh, acknowledgement that if you're going to have another generation going into the war of battle, I want them to train for it, unlike what I saw when I was about 22 years old and seeing all these people cut down, not knowing what they were doing. The stories of losers are just so awful, bewildered young men in their hundreds, not knowing where to go, insufficiently trained and being mowed down. And I'm sure he did not want that to happen again. So that's one of the reasons that uh, the, 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 the boys at the time, like Barney, were caught up in this military training, which was quite intensive. Uh, they had lots of sort of associations with actual with the Australian Army um, to get the most realistic sort of training that it was possible to get, and that and Barney acknowledged that that stood him very very well. He didn't find it as hard when he was on the grey. He got on the Air Force for a terrific reason because he thought he'd survive. He had a, he, ironically he thought he'd, he'd have a higher chance of surviving. I'll get to that in a sec. But when he was on the ground after being shot down, he actually kept thinking of his training back here and how much it actually had helped him. 
Um, and, and because young men of that time were so imbued with how awful the first war had been, so many joined the Air Force thinking that's the best place to survive a war. But unfortunately, it was reversed by the Second World War and the Air Force was the most dangerous by a million miles uh, of the services to be in, particularly for most of the airmen who went, who trained in Australia because the bulk of them went to Europe to fly in bomber command like, like Barney. The chances of surviving a tour, you only had to do 30 missions or trips, as I call them, at various stages of the Second World War, particularly the bulk of the middle part. The chances of surviving a tour in Bomber Command was one in three and sometimes one in four. But being in a bomber crew in Bomber Command was incredibly dangerous. They were all volunteers. They were all highly trained. Inevitably, two-thirds of the way through Barney's tour, he was shot down by a German night fighter and came down almost on the French-German border. In fact, he remembers walking back across this sort of barbed wire in the middle of the night. They're saying, what is all this barbed wire? And this sort of gateway and a pillbox where, thank goodness, nobody was. And it was the French-German border. So he basically, when his training kicked in and he'd been told, if you're on the ground and in a village uh, somewhere and, and you want to approach someone, pick the last house in the street because if they're unfriendly, at least you can duck back into the forest. And that's exactly what he did. And so he virtually appeared as this sort of, this sort of disheveled, uniformed wraith in the middle of this uh, uh, French, Frenchman's uh, lounge room uh, late one night, or well, so early one evening, because I think it was as dusk was, was coming. And he'd been observing this village for a day or two, and so I'll pick that house there. And thank goodness they had connections with the French resistance. So then began the second part of this extraordinary um, ordeal when he was on the ground in the resistance. I'll, I'll, I'll let you ask some questions. I, want to <laughs> I would like to acknowledge, though, you called Neil McNeil prescient. I would put Barney up there as prescient as well because he looked at the situation and thought, most likely I'll get sent to Bomber Command. If I get sent to Bomber yes. Command, most likely we'll be in a Lancaster looks up the schematics of the Lancaster. Oh, the bomb aimer, he's on top of the escape hatch. That sounds good, that might be useful. <laughs> Came in handy on the 20th mission. So then Barney survives and reaches that last house in the village, as Michael says, and he goes through some mix of great hardship and some also truly comedic moments. I was wondering if you could tell us the story in the restaurants. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes. Well, this is in the first couple of days after Barney's arrival, shall we say. He was immediately given a, um, a cover identity of a, he was a deaf and dumb French mechanic. Now, what use of deaf and dumb French mechanic would actually be, Barney? I'm, I'm, I'm actually not sure. However, as he was being sort of worked out what they do with him, his mind has sort of took him to various places. He was in a French cafe quite on a busy day. And of course, the whole place had been occupied by the Germans, so the Germans were everywhere. And uh, his minder, who didn't speak very good English at all, sort of sat him down in a restaurant and immediately saw someone out the window that he had to talk to, so he bolted out again. Meanwhile, the waitress came up to him and started saying, um, in French, your water, sir, what is your water? But he didn't speak a word of French. And this girl became more and more agitated and saying, what is your order? And we said, you know, as waitresses do, with a pad and paper, uh, next to him was a table full of German officers in uniform. 
And all that had to happen was for their attention to be caught, because they were all trained in France to be on the lookout for things like, for, 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 for suspects. They were, they were trained to be actually on the lookout for people who were inexplic inexplicably mute, because of course that was the cover, and it was incredibly unlikely. But some, and I think Barney recalls just the flicker of an interest in this German officer beginning to look around at this kerfuffle, and all he had to do was put two and two together, and even as he was challenged, that would have been it. He would have been shocked. He was out of uniform and an enemy combatant. There was no questions. He would have lasted a week. He would have gone to the Gestapo, and that would have been the end of him. All within the Geneva Convention, by the way. That was actually perfectly legitimate to do. Thank goodness the fellow came back just in time to sort of wrest this situation away from disaster. But there were so many more disasters uh, Barney managed to avert. I mean, about nine lives. This fellow had 90 lives, and he managed to sort of uh, 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 evade the untimely demise of all of them. There were all sorts of things. So the, one of the most tragic is when, um, uh, much later, when, as part of the resistance, uh, they were hiding in the woods in this sort of... Um, this um, uh, um, winter cottage, because they had to get away from the Germans. Uh, they knew the Germans were starting to infiltrate back into this area of Alsace-Lorraine in the Vosges Mountains, because the Germans were planning to make a last stand there uh, to protect the flank of the American armies. It gets with military history complicated. American armies are coming up from the south of France, and they were going to push through to get to these the heart of Germany, Augsburg, and all these big important cities. So the Germans decided we're going to make a stand in this natural reach of mountains that run to the kind of um, east of Alsace-Lorraine. So the Germans were starting to come back into all this area. Meanwhile, all these resistance cells were sort of dotted up into the mountains and were basically hiding there. But occasionally they had to come back into the towns to get supplies. And one of these supply trips, um, um, Barney and his minder came down into the town. They skied down the mountains, and at night did a sort of a sort of a, you know, had a very quick sort of shopping trip and a doctor's trip to, to check them up. So they went to the doctor, and he checked Barney out. Checked out it was Bebel, wasn't it? That he was with, yeah, yeah. The the his the pre-existence minder. Then went to do some shopping, and then they came back to the doctor and said, look, good luck, you know, you're all okay, but just, I haven't had much news from outside. Tell your men they'll be called upon very soon, as indeed they were, but just stay put for the moment. And they went back to the mountain. The very next morning, that doctor was arrested by the Gestapo and shot. Not the next morning, but uh, uh, it, it, it was... I think Biden was quite traumatised for a while because they thought that it was partly his arrest was associated with his visit. It turned out that it was not. The Germans were after him anyway because he'd been assisting the resistance for a long time. One of the great thousands of heroic stories of the French um, resistance during the um, Second World War. Um, all sorts of other, I mean, this, this close encounter with, uh, well, much later in the piece, where they're on the run, they're what happens is that their, their, their Maki camp got sort of broken up as the Germans sort of pushed, pushed back and met a lot of fierce resistance from, from the unit that Barney was associated with. Luckily, he was away on a scouting mission at the time and witnessed the attack from, from, uh, from an adjacent mountain peak. 
but was not involved in it specifically. But then the, the camp scattered, and he met. It, it, it becomes like this bizarre story involving sort of two uh, wandering British Indian officers uh, you know, from India, having been taken prisoner in the desert two years before, and then in full uniform, terrified of being on on the on the run in France because. It's hard enough for someone like Barney to hide, but if you're an Indian uh, uh, officer, where the hell are you going to hide? They're terrified the Germans were, 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 were just going to um, uh, arrest them immediately. An American and a British, it's like the walking to a pub joke, isn't it? But they were actually on the run. Um, they are in some barn. They kept going to barns. Uh, that's correct. You had to hide in a lot of barns during the Second World War. You did indeed. Um, and there was one point where they were getting up in the morning uh, in the, the sort of big pile of hay. And on the other side of this sort of uh, fairly thin wall, wooden slatted wall, just slats about that set so you could see moving. You couldn't quite see what was happening. And they realised there was a platoon of German soldiers were literally resting against the wall of this barn that they were in. And they couldn't make a noise because they were literally from here to there away through this sort of slatted wall of this rather dilapidated barn. And they were with a big American officer, Reese, and a Lieutenant Colonel Prendergast, who was part of a mission that they became involved with. I'll get to that in a second, we have the time. But they just sort of froze in this sort of tableau uh, and, and hearing all this kerfuffle and hearing the rifles being stacked up against the wall. And then sure enough, a German sort of peers through this and sees an American six foot, six foot two American officer standing there, and then they go to draw their rifles. The American officer walks forward and suddenly vanishes, and he crashes through the floor of this uh, sort of barn where the hole had been in the roof and the floorboards were all rotten, and crashes through to a cellar underneath. The noise terrifies the Germans so much, they all scarper. They all kind of run off, but all it had to do was they would have turned around and open, open fire with their Schmeiser submachine guns and that would be it. But there are many, many incidences like that that you think, how do you get over the nerves of that? How do you? But you just day after day, they had to just sort of um, carry on. They um, were in the middle of this, they're in a no man's land of one of these uh, uh, sort of forgotten battles at the end of the French campaign. For some, as luck would have it, the part of France Barney was in was where the Germans held out towards the very months after Paris had been liberated and months after they had been kicked out of the north of France. But in the east, the Germans decided had decided to have this this last battle, and this poor the, the village um, saw a snipe come up of um, a village called uh, La Bresse, which is up in the which is a high altitude uh, village in the um, in the Vosges mountains. But the Americans had to get through, and the Germans were determined to hold. So as a result, the village was absolutely wrecked. It was just about every house in the village was destroyed. Atrocities were committed on the population who were basically forced marched further up into the mountains, snowfields. Many of them perished through exposure. And Barney was, well, he wasn't quite a witness because he had been liberated just before that. But that's what he was uh, at, the, uh, at the start of. Um, it's an incredible wartime ad ad adventure. There's so many chapters to it. I could have written double what I did, but Matthew Kelly wouldn't have allowed me. It would have been too hard to edit, and he would have been able to sell it for the price he's got about. But you know, <laughs> <laughs>
don't think you need me up here, mate. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> but I, you mentioned uh, Reese and Prendergast. I yes, yes. want to talk actually about the sources you use to put the book together, because you obviously you have Barney and you have myriad of other stuff accrued uh, over time by the family and other third yes, parties, yes. but also the Jedburgh of reports Barney pictures in. Yes, and, and so you've prompted me to remind everyone that this was indeed a group effort, and uh, your good self, um, Angus, the, the, Ch Charlie, the whole uh, um, Greatrex family were an enormous, I couldn't have done it but by myself because there was, because when you're digging into an un, essentially untold story, you have to rely on the largest of family and people who have a great interest and a great love for the story and thank you so much for your help. Yeah. Um, I, I put the words together but a lot of the research came from other people. And halfway through the research, pro, uh, research I was alerted to the fact that a report on a mission that Barney became caught up with was still in existence. Uh, just a tiny bit of background. When the French, we call the, the French Resistance was an enormous kind of huge, chaotic, wobbly organisation that was frankly divided often amongst itself as much as it was uh, uh, against the Germans. But what we call the, the Marquis were the armed wing of the French Resistance, who were basically civilians clutching uh, submachine guns that had been dropped from canvases by the British and Americans with very elementary military training. Now, when push came to shove, the British knew that these people were going to be cut down in droves and that with a, unless they had a little bit more, more training, a, a basic military, you know, uh, um, uh, wherewithal. So they organised these three-man, very, very slick three-man teams that they codenamed code Jedburahs. And there were a hundred or so Jedburah teams dropped uh, with highly trained multilingual officers speaking the language of the country they were operating in. Most of them were in France, a few in Holland, a couple in, a couple in, the, um, in Scandinavia, but mainly in France. Um, and Barney met the Jebra officers as they arrived to his marquee, there'd been this long delay, and suddenly out of the gloom one night after going up to their drop area, uh, where they hear the, the planes coming over and these big tall American comes out and says, hi, how are you going? Have some chewing gum. That's almost what it was like. And this was Reeves, who was uh, one of the heads of this three-man team. They met Barney and thought, this man is a wonderful asset. He's now speaking the language. He's very intelligent. He's articulate. And he kind of knows the lay of the land and the personalities objectively, and that's what we need. So he became an essential part of this mission that was codenamed uh, Pavot. Okay, so at the end of it, Jedburgh Pavot goes back to England. A report, a fabulously written, beautifully written report by this fellow Prendergast, who was the boss of it. He writes it up. And halfway through the research period, it's alerted to. Now, how did it come about? I can't remember. Charlie? Charlie, yeah. you, you found it, didn't yeah. you? Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> You found it in the archive, fallen behind, yeah. uh, fallen behind a cupboard that yeah, never right. in. I went to London. Yeah. Good for you. But the report <laughs> that actually mentions Barney, it was that wonderful confluence of sources all coming together. And it was the, I mean, I didn't need proof, but it was that eureka moment where, yes, it all fits together. And I'm coming from one direction, and there's 
proof that the track I'm on is correct because this completely other blind source has vindicated what we've all been writing about and of course vindicates Barney's story. It didn't need vindication anyway, but that moment of clarity was terrific. And it went on to paint so much colour into the adventure that Barney was involved in. Barney, of course, wrote his own brief account. It's not a big account, but it gave the basics. A lot of French sources as well, because the friendships that Barney made in France uh, lasted his lifetime, have, have lasted his lifetime, I should say, and multi-generational too. It's been a remarkable journey. Obviously, Barney's life is a remarkable journey, but it's been quite a journey watching all this come together and see the book come to fruition. And one of the big highlights in recent years was the Legion of Honor last year, which is sort of the lovely final note in the story. Yes, the French government acknowledged, um, uh, you know, uh, it took them a long while, it has to be said, but they did acknowledge finally uh, the airmen that had flown over their country during the Second World War, risking their lives. Barney was the only survivor of his aircraft. Thousands, I mean, just getting back to the dangers of Bomber Command, 55,000 young men lost their lives in Bomber Command. All highly trained, all expensively trained. Uh, it, it's, that's as many uh, men who were killed as in the whole of the Royal Navy for the entire Second World War. 55,000 uh, young men just in one section of Royal, Royal and Commonwealth Air Forces. That's not the fighters, that's not the transports, that's not the coastal command planes, it's just the bombers. So France, yes, acknowledged that it's, it was time to award these men who flew out over our country as, I don't like you, you use the word hero because people like Barney don't like to use the word hero, but to us, there's not many other words you can use. And it was wonderful that he had that wonderful uh, acknowledgement of the Legion of Honor from, from, from the French government that meant so much to them, not just to Barney, but to so many of these fellows that I'd um, um, spoken to. The Bomber Command men after the war did not have a good time. There's a parallel to what they went through with the fellows who went to Vietnam and came back to find that in many cases what they'd been asked to do by their government was had been shunned and they'd been caught in the middle of this awful kind of politics. A lot of that happened to the Bomber Command people after the Second World War as well. They did, out of all the servicemen, especially in Australia where there was a kind of a prejudice of people who had fought in Europe as opposed to fighting in the Pacific. But so this is why it was so good that after so many years, things like the Legion of Honor actually happened and it meant an enormous amount. Well, it's an amazing life and it's been remarkably told. Thank you, Michael, for your brilliant work in bringing it to the page. Thank you. You can find video and photos from the launch at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com slash book or on our Facebook page. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod. Barney Greatrex is out now where all good books are sold. Dimmix, Big W, Booktopia, Book Depository, wherever you shop, on foot or online, it's there. And the ebook is out now on Amazon, iBooks and Kobo. Get it for yourself or a Christmas present. Thanks for listening to this bonus, bonus episode of Life on the Line.
we have a regularly scheduled bonus episode out tomorrow with the wonderful Hugh Remington. Be sure to tune in. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. Mm-hmm.